All right. Well, welcome to the Monday Minute of the Hunt Backcountry podcast. The Monday Minute episodes are shorter, more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. I'm often or normally joined by Steve, but he is wrapping up a long weekend he enjoyed with the family, and I'm running solo this morning. Since I'm running solo, I looked through the list of questions and topics and things that you guys have sent in and want to hear about, and I'm just going to make this episode somewhat of a gear-focused Q&A. So I picked gear-related questions that I had personal experience with and could provide some input on. So that's what we're going to do today is somewhat rapidly uh, go through some gear questions. I don't have prepared notes or anything of that sort, so it's going to be just my kind of quick off-the-cuff take on the questions that you guys have on some gear items, again, that I've experienced to speak to. Before we do that... um, I just want to remind you guys when it comes to gear that Steve and I both do get to test a lot of gear, but we also love sticking with things that we know that works. So we haven't tried everything um, partially on purpose because when we find stuff we like, we tend to stick with it. And it's not until we see something or have an opportunity to try something that we think may truly be better that we actually try something new. So that's one thing. The other I just want to say and remind you guys is we have zero sponsorship or affiliation from a paid or strategic perspective when it comes to gear. Um, So yeah, take that for what it's worth. None of this is hashtag sponsored or anything of the sort. This is just what we use, what we like, what our objective, uninfluenced opinions are uh, for good or bad. So that's that. Also, speaking of gear, do want to remind you guys that here in the month of July of 2023, we have a giveaway with the guys from Outdoor Vitals for their Ventus hoodie. So that's going on again right now in July of 2023. If you didn't enter yet, just go to exomountgear.com forward slash podcast. There's a simple entry form there to enter your email, then you'll be entered into that giveaway. The Ventus is a really cool piece that uh, Steve and I both have had for multiple years at this point. It's incredibly warm for the weight. I love the fit and cut especially. Um, It's just awesome. And then it is just a simple streamlined piece. So it's a kind of a quarter zip pullover. Um, Again, just really, really warm, really light. It's perfect for like this time of year, if you were making a summer scouting trip and you, you know, you still need an insulation piece for some warmth at night at elevation, but you don't necessarily need a full featured or full warmth kind of winter puffy, the Ventus would be something excellent to take on scouting trips, early season trips, potentially spring trips, or to add to, um, you know, a really cold trip kind of as a, an extra warm mid-layer or supplement, what have you. All right, let's dive into questions. This first one came through and said, a few podcasts ago, Mark and Steve mentioned what they are doing for a water purification and storage system this year. I have struggled to find a water system that I really like. Currently, I'm running a Sawyer Squeeze with a Sawyer bag, a backup Cenoc bag, and an Nalgene bottle. This provides five liters of total storage, 
I'm curious, can you share the specific items that you guys are using this year? Thanks for the insights. So before I get into the specific items we're using, I will just say that uh, it's worth touching on the, I don't want to say philosophy, but like the system from a big picture in the sense that our system is pretty similar to what this guy's doing, where we have a squeeze style filter, a drinking vessel, and additional storage for water, primarily dirty water, non-filtered water. We are not using a gravity filter, and we're really not using a water bladder or an inline quick fill system for our water bladder, which are things that we've done in the past, but we've just kind of moved away from it. Not that those are wrong or bad, but the more we've tried the system, like I'll talk about here in a second, Steve and I both kind of separately have made a transition and and really enjoyed doing this. Um, So I just want to say the specific items you'll choose is going to be dictated in part by if you want a gravity system, you probably want something different. If you want to use a water bladder and do a quick fill setup, you may want something different as well. But I'll talk about the system that we're using, which again is actually really similar to what this guy does. So to uh, to recap, a water filter, squeeze of some sort. So you're taking a dirty bag, connecting the filter to it, squeezing that dirty bag to output clean water. That could be into your drinking vessel, such as an algae, you could filter directly into, say, at night into your jet boil, for example. Um, so for us, there is clean water you drink, dirty water you carry, and a way to filter dirty water into clean water. It's really that simple. So the specific items that we're using are a one liter Nalgene in the K4 Nalgene holder on our pack, that's our primary drinking vessel, some sort of larger dirty water reservoir for capacity, whether that's like three or four liters. The Hydropack Seeker is an outstanding choice here. It's a 42 millimeter cap. It's compatible with the Cadenin B-Free or Hydropack's new 42 millimeter filter. Have used both of those have used the Cadenin B-Free longer simply because it's been around longer. But in my use of the new HydroPack filter so far, I like it a lot, it's performed well. I do like their cap system a bit a bit, a bit better. It's, uh, it's gonna be less prone to leak and you can keep the filter installed. Whereas typically, if I'm running a HydroPack Seeker and the Cadenin B-Free, I'm gonna remove the filter from the dirty bag because I, you know, they're just more prone to leaks. And so I'm going to cap my dirty water container, carry my filter separately. But with the HydroPack filter, they have a better closure. I've carried it a ton installed and it doesn't leak or at least hasn't leaked yet. So that is one kind of pro so far. We'll see how the long-term performance of the filter lasts in terms of comparison to the B-Free. So again, a HydroPack Seeker is a great larger capacity. I think they make those in one, two, three, four, and I think six liters. So you can kind of pick your um, capacity there. Three or four would be a great choice for this dirty water capacity. And then the filters I just mentioned, Cadenin B-Free or Hydropack 
um, both good filters that are compatible with the HydroPack Seeker. So at this point, we kind of have everything we need. We have a drinking vessel, a filter, and a dirty water container. And then we'll typically have a secondary dirty water container that's smaller. That's essentially just a backup or a fail safe. Because if you had an issue with your primary dirty water container, uh, a leak, a lack of pressure, you're going to then struggle to filter water from that. So having two options to have a dirty water reservoir that you can filter from is a good choice. Part of the practicality here is you can buy any of the filters I mentioned previously, the HydroPack or the Caden Be Free, with or without a bag included. It's generally more, I don't say popular, it's more accessible to buy a like Caden Be Free with their Be Free bottle or Be Free bag. So you're really going to get the filter and the bag together. That's generally a one liter option. And then you can buy separately that higher capacity HydroPack Seeker, for example. But you can buy the filters just by themselves. And I believe with HydroPack, you can even buy the higher capacity, like three or four liter Seeker with their new filter. So there's different ways to piece this together, whether you buy the filter by itself, the filter with a small bag, or the filter with a larger bag. But again, the big picture is a filter, dirty water container with a small backup, and then a primary drinking vessel. With that system, you know, you can easily have five, six liters of total capacity or more, depending on how you set it up. So again, the philosophy is the same as what this gentleman mentioned with his Sawyer Squeeze, the Sawyer Squeeze bag, and the CNAC bag. I would just say that the filters I've mentioned in Kaden and HydroPack perform much better than the Sawyer Squeeze. The HydroPack bags are much better than the Sawyer bags. And so it's essentially, I would say to this guy, hey, take your same system, but when budget time allows, upgrade to these different components. You're not really changing the system or the idea. You're changing the parts of the system and you'll have better performance, better longevity, and better durability in my experience. All right, links to all those items will be in the show description. Again, I will link to some of the options. There are options to buy the filters individually, the filters with large bags or small bags. So I'm not going to link to every possible option, but I'll link to the key components in the show description for you guys. All right, next question. This guy wrote in and said, Hey, Mark, I really enjoyed watching your mountain goat hunt in Alaska. It was a very entertaining film. Side note, thank you. He went on to say, I'm curious which phone adapter you were using for your spotting scope. I'm in the market for one, and I noticed you had one on a couple of your hunts, so I was wondering what you used. All right, so I'm running the Allen, or All-In, I'm not exactly sure how you say that, O-L-L-I-N system. It is one of the magnet-based systems, um, so you have the attachment to the spotting scope's eyepiece, you have your phone case, pair those two together with a magnet, it self-aligns, self-centers, and is really consistent, fast, and easy to use, which is what I really, really like. I love how quick it is. I love that I don't have to fiddle with settings or reconfigure or realign at any point. It's just really consistent and really quick to use. What I don't necessarily love about the system 
is it does force you to use their phone case because their phone case is built for their eyepiece. And then at least on my version of the iPhone, the two lenses where there's the 1X lens and the 0.5X lens, I know newer iPhones often have three lenses, but the Allen case on my phone blocks the 0.5 lens, which I occasionally like to use on a hunt to take photos of landscapes or what have you. So it's like a minor annoyance that if I want to use the 0.5 lens, I have to pop the phone out of the case to use it. It is pretty easy to do, so no big deal, but again, a minor annoyance. And then their phone case isn't the most like durable, rugged, outdoors type case. On the bright side, it is pretty streamlined. So, you know, pros and cons on their case design. In a perfect world, you could use whatever case you wanted, but again, how would you achieve the consistency, the attachment, the alignment of having an eyepiece with a non-specific phone case or some sort of attachment that adds to your phone case, which is where the bulk and adjustment and all that comes from. So what I'll say is when I am on a trip where I'm digiscoping, or even I do this on range trips with shooting, uh, I don't mind swapping my phone in and out to use this digiscoping system. And for me, the pros of the quickness, convenience, and consistency of the system outweighs any potential cons for my use case of needing to use their case. So all in all, I really like that system. I haven't tried some of the other magnetic systems like MagView. Um, I've handled them a little bit. It shows. haven't used them in the field. From what I have seen, the Allen that I'm using kind of meets my preference better. I'll put it that way. So I plan to stick with it and use it all for the rest of this year. It's been a good system. All right. Another guy wrote in and said, I feel like I have an endless amount of gear questions, but if you don't mind helping me out on a couple, here they are. So this guy wrote in and has, I don't know, four or five questions here. I'll touch on them all, I believe. (laughs) The first one is, which is better in your opinion? The Durston One Pro or the Gossamer Gear The One? So I've used both of these shelters uh, quite a bit. They're both good shelters for sure. Uh, I don't mean to nitpick on this guy's question, but just to point out in general, I always do like to think through a question like this. He said, which one is better? My question is better for what, right? So which one's better? Well, the typical, maybe it depends, but let me highlight a few things. These are both one-person shelters, both trekking pole-supported shelters. They're both kind of a single-wall hybrid design. They both have vestibules, so they do have a lot in common, for sure. Um, Some of the big-picture differences, the Gossamer Gear is going to be a single side entry with a single vestibule. The Durston is a dual-entry, dual vestibule, so it's like this symmetrical design. Uh, the Gossamer Gear is going to have a smaller footprint. The Durston's going to have a larger footprint. Uh, there's differences in materials. Uh, he mentioned specifically the Durston 1 Pro, which is uh, going to be a DCF. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of similarities and a lot of differences to consider. So then it becomes which one's better? Again, better for what? Better for who? Better for where? Better for when? What have you? So. As I mentioned, the footprint on the Gossamer gear, 
tent is a bit smaller, it is going to be a bit easier to set up in really tight, uh, uneven, narrow conditions. Um, it does have a bit of an advantage if that's relevant to where you will be. I have, however, uh, set up the Durston One Pro at like 12,700 feet in Colorado in a deer bed. So it's possible to like get it set up on the side of a mountain with very minimal um, flat spots. The, the Gossamer gear to be a little bit easier, but the Durston uh, still has some some variability to get into tight spots for sure. Again, because of the dual vestibules though, it does just have a larger footprint. So it's going to be a little bit more difficult, a little bit more finicky and really, really tight setups. Um, price is obviously going to be a big difference. The Gossamer gear is, I don't know the exact price. Um, I didn't check them recently or for the show, but essentially the Gossamer gear is going to be half the price of the Durston One Pro. Uh, part of that is just materials. Again, the One Pro being DCF. So Gossamer gear, if you're on a tighter budget, is definitely going to be uh, essentially half the cost. And I don't think it is half the tent from a performance or features perspective. Um, so if budget's a concern, maybe Gossamer gear is the way to go. If you have the budget and you want the higher uh, higher end materials of the Durston, Maybe the Durston 1 Pro is the way to go. Livability, I would give an edge to the Durston. Again, primarily because of dual vestibules, dual doors. Uh, it's easier to kind of spray out, spread out, lay out, have room for more gear. If you're in a situation where um, you there's a decent possibility of spending a good amount of time in the tent, riding out storms, things of that nature, the Durston one just has more space, both for yourself, uh, but really more for gear and entry and drying things out. That said, the Gossamer gear, for how small it is, is incredibly roomy inside. Um, whereas most tents are, you know, roughly a pyramid, right? They're narrow at the the peak and come down and get wider. The Gossamer gear, with the way it pulls its pole set up, it kind of gets wider towards the top. So what that means is, as you're laying down and then sit up, you actually end up with a good amount of shoulder room, headroom, etc. So it's a livable tent to sit up in and spend time in for how small it is, which is one of the reasons I've liked it and used it a ton. But again, livability, space, gear, storage. Durston has the edge. Stormworthiness, I would give Durston an edge as well. Partially, uh, again, just because of the way it's laid out and the structure, the offset pole design, the symmetry of the design, it is going to be a bit stronger and more storm worthy. So all that said to say, Gossamer Gear, the one is great. I've used it really more than any other tent in the last handful of years. Durston One Pro, if you have the budget for it, if you want the extra space, and if you will be using it in more severe weather, uh, could be the way to go as well. So both great tents. All right, he also went on to say, as you're backpack hunting day to day, do you hang all of your stuff and food away from you every night to avoid bears? Uh, short answer is no, I don't. Um, I would if I was hunting lower 48 
brown bear country. Uh, I just haven't backpack hunted in lower 48 brown bear country. So in Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, the places I've been, and even in Alaska, such as on our goat hunt, we were backpacking and moving, you know, each night we didn't have an established camp and there was, we saw plenty and plenty of bears. We didn't hang food or do anything of the sort, partially on the Alaska hunt anyway, because in Alpine it's tough to hang food. So, but no, in lower 48, um, again, if I'm hunting elk in Idaho, Colorado, uh, et cetera, I don't, if I'm hunting bears, I don't, um, same for deer. If I was in an area of Wyoming, Montana, et cetera, that was notable brown bear country or, you know, obviously eastern portions of Idaho or wherever brown bears are more of a concern, I would definitely take more precautions in terms of hanging food, uh, keeping more of a clean camp, etc. All right. He also asked, is there a diaphragm holder on the way for the K4 shoulder harness? If not, would the inReach holder work to hold a few diaphragms? Good question. We have uh, certainly talked about that, looked at that, built some prototypes uh, and ideas. It short story is not going to happen this year for this fall. We have basically all of our production capacity and then just all of our uh, time as a, as a small team has gone into keeping up with the K4 launch and the accessories that we are launching this year. So what exists now for K4 is what you will see for this year. The K4 rifle carrier is coming out soon, right at the end of July or the first few days of August. And then also a Blaze orange lid for K4 is coming out about that same time. So everything K4 on the website as of this moment, plus those couple items is what we will have for this year. That said, we will continue to build some accessories and other items in the K4 line, just not for this year's hunting season. All right, last question from this guy. He went on to say, I will be buying a new puffy jacket for this fall. Would you recommend the Stellar Equipment Puffy or the Montbell from the Japan website that you guys have talked about? So asterisk here for me personally, uh, Steve owns the Stellar. I do not own one. I have worn his. And then Jake from EXO, he has the Mount Bell Puffy from the Japan website. Uh, if you're confused by like, why the Japan website? Essentially, you can buy, because of exchange rates and other things, you can buy gear from Mount Bell through their Japanese website. It does, you know, you are paying for international shipping and all that, but you still essentially get the items cheaper. Another asterisk on that is their sizing is a bit different. So uh, you essentially want to look at their size chart, but you would roughly need to size up one size. So if you typically wear a large in US, you would probably need to buy an XL if you're purchasing from the Mont Bell Japan website. Um, but I don't own either of those items. I have handled both and tried both on, and I've looked at both and talked with guys uh, that use them, obviously. Um, they're both good. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think they would be the only two options to consider. Um, for example, I just recently got the Canis Alps hooded down jacket, which again is something that Steve has had and worn in the past. Um, and I picked one up and 
absolutely am thrilled with the cut and fit of it. And if you compare specs, uh, it's a fantastic piece, not just from a hunting brand, but on the market in general. Um, fantastic piece. So that's what I plan to run for most of this year and this fall is that piece from Canis. Um, pri- last year, primarily, I wore the Sitka light down which is a blend of down and synthetic so it's a little bit different because this guy's been asking about pure down jackets up to this point but um just to throw out you know comparison that's another puffy i've worn quite a bit among others over the years from outdoor research and a whole bunch of brands so as i've said before with with puffy jackets it's generally fairly easy to make comparisons because you're essentially looking at what are the fabrics? So like, what's the shell fabric? Is it a 10D, a 12D, a 15D, etc.? cetera? Uh, you need to look at interior and exterior. You need to look at the down fill type. So is it an 800 fill power, an 850, a 1000? You need to look at the amount of down fill. So is there four ounces of down in this thing? Is there five ounces of down in this thing, etc.? When you compare all those variables together, the shell fabrics, the type of downfill, the amount of downfill, that should create a weight range for the total piece of the garment. So are you looking to have a down jacket that weighs 10 ounces? Or are you okay with one that weighs 16 ounces? Do you want one that weighs 20 plus ounces? And then obviously just cut and fe- uh, cut and features from there, right? Like hood and hem adjustment and cuff style and all those things. So down jackets, there's countless, countless options out there. Uh, I just encourage people to understand the essentially the components of a down jacket. Again, the materials, the fill type, the fill amount primarily, and then to begin to understand what they want for the conditions, for the type of hunting they're doing. And then they can like narrow down this piece makes sense. This doesn't make sense. They can probably narrow it down to a few pieces and then just look at features, reviews, fit, etc. So, um, yeah, the Stellar, I would go on a 10 day hunt with it now. Mop Bell, I would do the same. This Canis piece is what I'm planning to do. The Z Glide Down, same deal. So, yeah. And then again, it just, it, it mattered. Like, you begin to look at, am I backpacking or not? Is this September? Is this late November, you know, Montana rifle mule deer, like understand the seasonality, the context, this hunting style, all that does actually matter for even something like a down jacket. So more than an answer, I will give you a bunch of questions to consider. All right. Another guy wrote in and said, I'm in the process of making some gear decisions for a Sitka mountain goat and blacktail deer hunt that I have coming up. Since you have experience with Kodiak and those species in particular, as well as a lot of gear, can you help me out with these items? Then he went on to say, what attachment method do you use for your Thunderbeast Ultra suppressors? Have you seen that it holds at zero when removing it for travel and then reattaching it at your destination? So yeah, the again, if people aren't familiar with what he's talking about with Thunderbeast suppressors, you can use... Um, there's yeah for the Thunderbeast ultra suppressors you can use a cb mount uh, which is essentially a brake that a compact brake that's what cb stands for 
a compact rifle brake that you install on your rifle barrel. And then the suppressor is going to thread over that. So it's a it's kind of a quick detach system, but kind of isn't. Depends whose quick detach system uh, or idea you're talking about. But essentially, the suppressor threads over a brake. The brake is installed permanently or semi-permanently on your rifle. Versus direct thread, meaning your rifle's barrel just has open threads, no device installed, and you're threading the suppressor directly onto the barrel. Um, pros and cons to both a bit. Uh, I won't get into that full discussion. I will just say to answer his question, I use the CB brake mount. I have had their CB brakes on many rifles and have used, I own two Thunderbeast Ultra suppressors. I've put those suppressors, both models, on and off of those mini rifles many, 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 many times, and have never had any shift in point of impact or zero. If I put a suppressor on a rifle, zero it when shooting with that suppressor, take that suppressor off for two minutes or two months and put that suppressor back on, that rifle has held zero. Again, keep in mind that any issues with zero could be from many other things, not just your suppressor muzzle device, could be your scope, could be action screw torque, could be multiple things. I will just say that I have 100% confidence that taking a Thunderbeast suppressor on and off of your rifle with the CB mount, installing it, reinstalling it, removing it, etc., is not going to cause an issue. For me. Hasn't. Period. Ever. So, I have a ton of trust in that system. Alright, his next question was about knives. He says, I'm moving away from my Havilon after too many sliced fingers and lost blades. I was wondering what fixed blade knife do you like and also what sharpener? Um, a lot of good knives out there. Uh, I still sometimes grab essentially one of three on, on any given trip, partially based on like which one did I leave sharp and clean uh, if it's a last minute thing. But um, Eagle Hawk Knives makes great knives. They're an Australian company. Uh, I look really quick. They're sold out right now. So they're not the cheapest option nor the easiest to get because they're from Australia, but they truly are fantastic. Uh, Chris Reeve knives. Um, they're actually neighbors of ours at EXO and make uh, fantastic, historically high-end uh, is what they're known for is their pocket or folding knives. But they have a fixed blade knife called the Inyoni. That's a fantastic hunting knife uh, that I've used quite a bit. And then uh, Brad from Argali, uh, his knives are fantastic. And those are the most most affordable, most accessible, uh, most affordable and easy to get, at least of the options I've mentioned. But uh, clearly there's cheaper options out there. But if you want something for fixed blade, premium quality steel that holds a good edge, uh, lightweight for backpack hunting, Though, like any of the knives I mentioned or something similar would be great. Again, Argali is what it's easiest to recommend because of the three, it's the cheapest and easiest to get. And it is just a fantastic, fantastic knife. Um, yeah, that would be some recommendations. Uh, again, Argali is going to be the easiest one to grab. 
So I'll leave a link to those knives in the show description for you guys. In terms of a sharpener, I would break it down into two options. One is a non-guided system or a guided system. Guided meaning there's a guide on the sharpener that helps you set and hold a consistent blade angle. That's helpful uh, if you have less experience sharpening, practice less, etc. My favorite sharpener for the field or for a backpack hunt um, or any field use is a non-guided. It's the DMT diafold. It is, I've, I've probably been using one for a decade plus at this point. Um, absolutely just love it. But it does take some practice uh, and technique to use it. So if you don't want to invest any sort of practice or explore technique, a guided system would be easier to use and WorkSharp has some guided field sharpeners that I would go uh, in that route if you want a guide. Uh, I'll leave links to the DMT and the WorkSharp guided field sharpeners uh, in the link description or in the show description. I'll have those links for you guys to check out. All right, the next gentleman wrote in said, I'm 42 years old. I started hunting as a teenager and would call myself a casual hunter for most of my life. Now, though, over the last three years, I've developed a passion for harvesting wild meat and am more involved with hunting, scouting, research, and training year-round. To that end, this is my first year trying archery elk hunting. I'll be hunting Western Oregon, and I have two questions. One, do you take any tools for your bow into the field, such as screwdrivers, pliers, Allen wrench, set, etc.? All right, so on that question, uh, one, I will point you guys to an article that we have on the EXO site that my buddy Josh Kirchner wrote. Uh, I believe the title is like, Get Your Bow Ready for the Backcountry. Um, and it's just a great read and kind of primer to go through and um, think through, hey, here's what I should do to my bow before any backcountry hunts to make sure I'm ready if some issue occurs. He talks a bit about tools, but there's more, I would say, more important. There's very other, very other, there are other very important considerations to make, such as, like, have you marked reference points? So let's say, for example, you're in the field and your your rest, the horizontal movement of your rest comes loose and it's shifting and sliding all over the place and you need to tighten it back down. Well, having the tool to tighten it back down is one thing knowing where to tighten it back down to is a whole different deal. So you need to have marked reference points, not just tools. You need to have some knowledge, not just tools. You need to ideally have a way to verify any sort of adjustment or fix or correction or tightening and not just a tool. So to this guy's question, I'd say that tools can be valuable, but if you have tools and nothing else, you're probably not going to be effective. So all that said to say for me personally, I do mark my bow with many different reference points for sights and rests and cams and etc. And then I generally may carry one or two individual uh, hex keys or Allen keys, but I don't carry like a full tool kit. I don't carry generally like 
extra dilute material or serving. I have in the past. Um, I don't carry a portable bow press with me in the field, for example. But all of the above and more, those capabilities, those tools are things that are good to have at the truck. So, you know, if you're five miles in and you have some sort of issue with your bow, my general approach is both because I'm not carrying all the tools, but also going back to verification on fixes, I generally am going to take the time to hike back out, use the tools at the vehicle, make the fix, and then use a target that I left at the vehicle to verify that I'm back on, even if I have to hike my butt back in and that's a 10 mile round trip. Generally, that's going to be uh, a better option than trying to do much in terms of field repair. Also, I will say, I've never had to do any field repair. So if you use quality gear, take some precautions, reference points, um, use Loctite where you need it or clear fingernail polish or things like that, like if you set your bow up well, chances are more than likely that the need of a field repair is going to be pretty minimal. So, all right, on to his next question. He went on to say, I will be hunting an area with a lot of logging roads that are closed to motorized traffic, but bicycles are allowed, just not e-bikes. Would you recommend that I load any meat in my pack and wear that loaded pack to pack the meat out on my bicycle? Or should I look at using a bicycle trailer to pull the meat out using my bicycle? And then he had some questions on specific types of bikes, such as full suspension versus front suspension, fat tire versus non, etc. Um, I'll just say I'm not the expert here. I know plenty of guys who do use bikes um, to pack out meat and hunt, you know, those, those logging roads on the West Coast there. And at least in my both observation as well as discussion with guys who do this quite a bit, uh, I think a front suspension versus full suspension bike is a good way to go. And uh, often a trailer um, is a good way to go as well versus wearing all of that meat on your back. But that can depend on the, the quality of the roads you're on and even your physical ability, capability, preference. But I would say in general, um, he sounded like this guy in this question was leaning towards a front suspension bike and a trailer. And I would say that that is probably a great way to go. All right, another question. I'm working on updating my scope and mounting system for my rifle. I have a much more much more traditional style rifle than your modern chassis build. He's talking about my rifle. He says, but I did see on a previous blog about your last Tika build that you used a DNZ Game Reaper scope mount system. I was wondering if you would still pick that today in terms of stability and durability but also semi-lightweight functionality. I'm moving away from traditional weaver-style bases and rings and loophole scopes that don't keep consistency well enough. Thanks for the input. So yeah, currently, uh, all of my at least primary rifles have an integrated Picatinny rail, uh, and I use Hawkins Precision's rings with that. If I were building something like had in the past, such as the Tika he referenced, I wouldn't necessarily go to my way to add a Picatinny rail uh, to a Tika, for example, and 
that scope mount system he mentioned previously, the DM, DNZ Game Reaper. I've used on Tikas, uh, I've used them on some lever guns, I've used them on quite a few rifles, and they're great. I haven't had any issues, they're pretty dang affordable, pretty light, it's a one-piece system, doesn't need to be lapped. Um, yeah, I, I don't have, I don't, you know, are they the high-end precision option out there? No. Are they great? for the price and for like just slapping on top of a Tika versus what he mentioned of like a Weaver style setup. Yeah, I think so. That'd be my preference. That's what I would do in a heartbeat if I was building another Tika or, you know, flat top action and didn't want to add a rail. Uh, the DNZ Game Reapers, great way to go. So if those are new to you guys listening, I'll leave a link to those in the show description as well. All right, this question came through, not a gear related question per se. But he was asking about some of our previous mentions of dehydrating meals. He went to, on to say, I'm still figuring out this dehydration thing. But on the chili mac recipe you guys shared previously, I was curious, do you guys dehydrate the cheese? I'm not sure what I can or can't dehydrate. And I wasn't sure if it was okay to dehydrate the cheese in that recipe. Thanks for the great podcast and all the helpful tips. Um, I didn't mention this. We, we shared this chili mac recipe previously. Um, and I, I basically was sharing it because I was having a conversation with Steve and shared this recipe with him because he was getting into dehydrating some of his own meals. And this chili mac recipe is one of my favorites. Steve avoids dairy. So I sent him the chili mac recipe and basically uh, told him to take the cheese out, obviously. And I think he was going to substitute any milk for like oat milk, for example. And I've made it that way because my son also has a dairy allergy. And that is the way I tend to make it now is without cheese or dairy milk. And it does dehydrate just fine. It tastes great. That said, in the past, I have made it with dairy milk and with cheese. And I have dehydrated that. And I didn't have any issues. If you look into dehydrating cheese and fats and some um, some dairy you do kind of have to be careful with, or some people would say to avoid in certain forms. But for this recipe in particular, the cheese is kind of cooked into this meal. You're pre-cooking the whole meal and then dehydrating the, call it assembled, already cooked meal. I haven't had any issues, including the bit of cheese into that chili mac to answer this guy's question. All right, one more. This guy says... This may be beating a dead horse, but I couldn't find anything in past podcasts that were this specific. Do you guys have any experience drying out wet clothes in a down sleeping bag or quilt? I've reached out to a couple of manufacturers who have said, who have said that with the new DWR treatment on down, drying out gear shouldn't be an issue as long as the bag or quilt doesn't get soaked. That seems like a neat idea, but I'm still hesitant. Is this something you guys have figured out a system for? So yeah, to this guy's point, we've talked about uh, down versus synthetic in the past. We've talked about drying out in sleeping bags or quilts in the past. Uh, I've shared personally about, you know, my mountain goat hunt and like weighing, was it going to be, was it going to take down? Was it going to go to synthetic, etc. And then in particular, this idea, this concept that he's talking about of, hey, I was out hunting today. I got soaked crawling in my sleeping bag with my wet clothes and allowing my body heat in this insulation system. 
to dry myself overnight? Is that going to work okay in a down bag or quilt? In particular with the down, which is pretty standard these days, that are hydrophobic or a treated or DWR type down. Um, I have not been truly soaking wet and got into a down bag to try my to dry myself out. I've been damp for sure. Um, I've gone to bed with pretty s- s- um, sweat soaked layers on uh, base layer top and bottom, and I've had good results doing so. Um, in a in a treated down bag such as my catabatic quilt. Again, been pretty sweat soaked, but not like been out in a downpour all day type soaked. And what I would, I guess where I'm leading is the answer to this question partially depends on the sleeping bag, but it depends on these other variables of even what clothing layers are you talking about and what, what clothing in particular, what fabrics are you trying to dry? So in my head, um, are you trying to dry a lightweight synthetic base layer? Well, that, that fabric is not going to hold as much moisture and is dry going to dry easier than a lightweight merino layer, for example. That merino layer is just going to be holding more water and it's not going to dry as quickly. So you're introducing more water into the system simply based on the type of clothing you're wearing. Or take, for example, the layer. So do you have not just a lightweight base layer, but do you have like a, a wet grid fleece, right? Again, more water in the system in that type of piece. Are you, um, were you wearing your primary hunting pants? Like, uh, not your rain pants, but did you get pretty wet in, you know, Prana Zions or Kuyu Attacks or uh, Sitka Mountain Pants or something like that? Like, again, it's a piece of clothing that could have more water in the system than just a base layer. So I just think there's a lot of variables to consider. And at the end of the day, if someone says, oh yeah, I've dried myself out in a down bag. It worked just great. It worked just fine. You, you kind of have to ask, okay, well, how wet were you? And then what were you wearing? What were you trying out? At the end of the day, there's zero doubt in my mind that a synthetic bag is going to be more effective and a safer solution to, in particular, more moisture than a treated down bag. So the synthetic is the easy button from a effectiveness and, and safetyness perspective. I don't think a treated down bag is incapable. I think it's less capable. So you just have to ask, like, what are the chances I'm going to be truly soaked? And then even what type of clothing layers am I expecting to dry myself in, in this sleeping bag? And, you know extreme conditions, Alaska, you know, my goat hunt, I was glad I took synthetic. Would I have been fine on that particular trip and the way that it went with a down bag? Yep, I would have been totally fine. But if I were to do that trip five times, there's a good chance I would want slash need the synthetics performance. Whereas archery elk hunting, lure 48, one in five times? No, I'm going to like down's going to be fine with the way I care for it, with what I'm wearing, with how I'm hunting. Like I can make down work, you know, 20 out of 20 times, I bet. Uh, Cause that's been my experience. So context matters, situation matters, the clothing you're wearing matters. If you have a high probability 
of a lot of moisture and truly needing to dry yourself out. And another variable I didn't talk about yet, this is a truly extended duration hunt. Synthetic's the easy answer. Because let's say you do get pretty soaking wet, you do have to dry yourself out in a uh, down or treated down bag. It's not that that bag's gonna like immediately fail, it's just how much moisture is in that bag and then how much loft are you losing over time? So if it's a short hunt, if it's a two to three day hunt, probably no big deal if the down didn't fully keep up or you're losing some loft and some moisture is getting on board within the system. But if this is a 10 day hunt and you get moisture in that bag and now you're going into day three, four, five, six, seven, and that bag is never fully drying or you're getting more and more moisture, it could be, could be a tough deal. So to be honest with you guys, I'm still weighing out yet again. I have a 10-day sheep hunt. Like, am I going to go synthetic or down? So I just look at all these variables, just like I talked about. So no easy answer, but hopefully thinking through those questions or ideas that I just presented will help you guys make a better, more informed decision for your particular situation. All right, guys, I've rambled on enough. Thank you guys for submitting all of these questions. I hope that you're able to take away something from this. For most of the items I mentioned, there will be links in the show description, so you can check those out. If you have any additional questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomongear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. We'll be back with a full episode on Wednesday this week. That continues our backpack hunt breakdown series. This particular episode is with our friend Yoni about a really cool hunt that was an October rifle hunt in Idaho for mule deer. We're going to be back on Friday with a bonus episode. We've been doing those the last couple weeks. We're going to do that again this week. So there's a lot more coming this week and beyond as we get closer to hunting season. Be sure that if you haven't yet, you hit subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app that you're using so that you receive those future episodes automatically. And again, don't hesitate to reach out if we can help you with anything or you have any questions send that email to podcast at exomongear.com and we'll talk to you soon.